0: Lord, we invite you to speak to us today. Um, Thank you for the gift of your word always, but um, especially because we hold it up and acknowledge it as the living word. The living word which breathes life and speaks of your good news to all of us. The hope and goodness that is in you and you alone. So Lord, I just pray that we would see that and hear that and Holy Spirit, I invite you to use these words to speak to the hearts of each person here and joining us in worship right now. And that, Lord, you would make yourself known. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. Amen. Have you ever heard this uh, phrase, follow your heart? Follow your heart. I, heard, I saw one hand over there. I, I heard more sighs. Hmm. Hmm. Follow your heart. Have you heard that before? I always kind of wonder what that means because I think it's trying to say something good but I think what it ends up meaning might not necessarily be as good as we'd hope for it to be you know I wanted to share with you the best that Pinterest has to offer for follow your heart so here's a few images and a few quotes that kind of get down into maybe what some people might think it means follow your heart and your dreams will come true that's all you have to do follow your heart or Pinterest also offers this, Pinterest thirteen one b Pinterest. Uh, Follow your heart, it knows the way. Your heart knows the way. Perhaps it hasn't been there before, but it knows the way. So you just gotta follow your heart, listen to your heart, and you'll know where to go. Or third, we're getting a little more cerebral here. Follow your heart, but take your brain with you. Don't, you know, just take it with you. Don't leave it somewhere. Take your brain with you, and the last one, Um, is uh, your heart knows things your mind can't explain. And this image here, it works really good for the last quote too, this image here. Heart, I got you, brain. I'm taking you with me. We're going. Um, Now those are kind of, you know, just small examples. You know, take it for whatever they're worth. But they, you know even though they probably begin to say something that is confusing about our hearts, they also are trying to say something of value. And what I mean by that is that there is something about heart knowledge. Like what is happening here, our worship in our space, is not all about just the brain. We're not just let's get, become the Christians that think the best. That's not the goal here. Our hearts are very much a part of our walk with Christ, our spirituality, our faith, our life, our identity, and we can't really separate that, but to put it all in the idea of how you understand your heart could lead to some misgivings. And part of this is the assumption is, and I invite this for all of us, what, what are our hearts actually capable of? Have you thought about that? What If you were going to solely rely on your heart, what would happen in your life? Would bills get paid? <laughs> would, um, would work happen? Would the house get cleaned? And those are really very small examples. But as I say that, our hearts are not just part of who we are. They are the center of who we are. And our hearts guide us and direct us, very importantly. I love the way the Proverbs describes the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, "'Above all else, guard your heart, "'for everything you do flows from it.'" Everything. It is the center of who you are. And so for me, when I think of, okay, how do I guard my heart? You know, how do I guard my heart? I think it means, for me, taking a deeper look of, well, what's happening in my heart? What things in my heart are good? And what things in my heart are not good? What things in my heart don't reflect what God's like? And as I start there, and I want you to do this with me today as well. As I start there thinking about what's going on, I also want you to think about what God's heart is like. What is God's heart like? How does everything God does flow from his being, the center of who he is, how is getting your mind wrapped around God's heart gonna help you in drawing near to him? So this kind of thinking is really connected to Lent. We're part of a, we're doing a series right now called Even Now, Return to Me, which sometimes feels a little general, but what I, what I want us to hone in on, understand why I wanted to focus on this so much for Lent is that it is so essential as followers of Christ that we hear all of God's invitations through all these different places in Scripture he's calling us to return to him, to go back to him. And part of this, connected to this sort of beginning message, part of the message is this idea of the heart, that we're not just people of the mind, we're people of the heart. So how do our hearts hear this call and invitation to return back to God? I was listening to a message this past week, and it was part of a series that was done at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which is where Tim Keller served for a long time. And they did, they had a series where they focused on the attributes of God. And there was a thesis for this series. So I'm giving you context for the thesis I'm about to tell you. But I found this very powerful and very important for us this morning. Every intellectual mistake, every destructive emotion, and every harmful behavior stems from not knowing, refusing, or forgetting who God is. So every intellectual mistake, choice I made by my mind maybe, or destructive emotion, not just, there's a really good place for anger in our life, but anger that becomes bitterness, anger that becomes hatred, or even paralyzing fear, that's a destructive emotion in a way. Every harmful behavior, all these things, they stem from not knowing, refusing, or forgetting who God is. And the return related to our hearts, is about remembering who God is. And remembering and confessing who God is reveals the condition of our hearts, and it shows us what God's heart is like. So the way I want to flow through this in Jeremiah this morning is three ways. One, I want us to reflect on the condition of our hearts. What is the condition of our hearts this morning? Or what are the conditions of the hearts of the people that Jeremiah was speaking to in those passages that were read before? And then we're going to look at God's heart for us. And that's going to lead us to looking at the new heart God wants to give to us. So, first I want to begin by looking a little closer into Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet, and Jeremiah the people around Jeremiah. And the first thing, I, Jeremiah is a very long book. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. Especially per verse count, the amount of words in the verses is longer. It's almost like really close to Psalms, to be honest. Uh, and Jer- Jeremiah the prophet has a rough go. All the prophets really have a rough go, to be honest. But Jeremiah has a couple different uh, superlatives that really kind of capture the struggle he has in his ministry. I mean, he is known as the weeping prophet. He's also credited for writing lamentations. So lots of grief and sadness, and I'll explain why there is in a little bit. But he has a rough call. It's also, and he's also one of the most human prophets. And what I mean by that is, we learn all these very personal details about Jeremiah. In the beginning of the book, the way God calls Jeremiah, it's all these details about his family, and of his life and community, and even the way he personally experiences the struggle around him, you see his heart and anguish. Very personal. And it's not just Jeremiah the prophet that's a big part of how to understand reading Jeremiah, but it's also the people. God basically called the people to follow him in life, and they said, no. And they dealt with serious consequences, consequences that they knew would be coming time and time and again. So one of the things that is a cue in to what's already happened in the book is sometimes you'll read in the Old Testament, Judah and Israel. Have you ever seen that? Judah and Israel. And... It's not like you have a map in front of you. What does that mean? Well, whenever you read in the Old Testament that Judah and Israel are kind of different entities, it's because you had the 12 tribes of Israel—do I have everyone so far? And oftentimes, the 10 tribes of Israel were called Israel. There were the northern tribes in the northern spot, and then Judah and the Levites connected to Jerusalem were Judah. So sometimes in a book like Jeremiah, it's not telling you the geography, but it's basically saying, things have happened. So, basically, the people of God have gone their complete own way. And the very first verse that was read for us this morning is Jeremiah 3.10. If you have your Bible open, I encourage you to read along. Jeremiah 3.10. In spite of all this, her faithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. What's already transpired is that the rest of the tribes, the 10 tribes I just told you about, they're gone that they had their chance, they walked away from God, they're gone. And God was hoping and desiring. this is the language through the prophets, that the people watching what would happen to these other communities, seeing, oh, God is bringing judgment to these other communities because they walked away from him, that Judah, Jerusalem, and the people around Jerusalem would still return back to God, that they could still do it. But... They fail to do that. That's what 10 is talking about. Judah, which is the people around Jerusalem, they have watched everything happen to all these sister tribes, and still they haven't changed their actions. The other thing I want to talk about related to the people that's really important for understanding Jeremiah is that if I'm going to say return, this series is based on Return then it implies there's a pre-existing relationship. You can't return to a place if you've never been there. You can't return to a person if you've never been there. And in the Bible, the return is based on the language of covenant. Covenant, which is this relationship God builds with his people. One of the beautiful places that describes this is Exodus 19. Exodus 19, It'll be the words will be on the screen for you. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That God is trying to call people to himself, just like he's calling you and me. To be a treasured possession, to have a community and a witness to the world. And one of the things that's described as part of what this covenant community is is supposed to be light. It's described in Deuteronomy, which you'll recognize it because Jesus echoes and references this, is that we are, the covenant community is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You've probably heard that before. And it talks about how the law is supposed to be on the people's hearts. But here's the issue, and this is where I'm going to move into the flow I talked to you about before. There's the condition of our hearts. That we see in these people and we experience the same thing the condition of our hearts because while this great set of rules and way to relate to god has laid in front of them the people are not able to follow through on it not at all it's tragedy completely and it is because of the condition of people's hearts that they are so far away from god and jeremiah here God is basically talking about divorce. If you looked at the verses before this, uh, it it is this horrible, painful image of divorce that's happening because God is basically saying that there's nothing else I can do. If you've left me, you've abandoned me. Essentially, the children of Israel, Judah, have been sleeping with every other God but their Lord, Yahweh. They have gone to every other God. The pain as God relates to his people as husband, watching this happen over and over again amongst people who have experienced the love of God personally. They had a home with God, and yet they've fled him. They've run away. God is calling his people back home. I wanted to reread a few of these verses, but I'm going to use a paraphrase. Uh, from uh, something called The Voice. It's a paraphrase, theological interpretation, something I really enjoy. But I, I mentioned the emotion of the text. I wanted to share the emotion. So please hear these verses again. It'll follow the verses you have, but with some slightly different words. Return to me, faithless Israel. I will look on you with mercy, not anger. Just admit what you did, your sin against me. Have you rebelled against, the, how, how you rebelled against the eternal, your God? How you gave yourself away to foreign gods in the open, under the trees. How you disobeyed my voice. Come back home, my restless, faithless ones. For I am your master, your husband, not that other God. And I will make, take you in. I will bring you to home in Zion. O Israel, if you turn, turn home to me. This is in chapter 4. Just turn away from the vile worship of those things, those idols that repulse me and put them out of my sight for good. Come home to me and never stray. The root of Israel's problems is not that different from our own, and what's so clear in these verses is the root for their sin, for their shortcoming, is idolatry. Acting as if someone or something is God when someone or something is not God And forgetting and rejecting the God who has saved them and delivered them over and over again. You know, it's kind of similar to that thesis statement I read in the beginning that every destructive mistake, every destructive emotion or harmful behavior, it comes from refusing to believe who God is. And idolatry, you know, for these people, you think about the fact that they are becoming, they were a bigger nation, becoming an even smaller nation. They're under threat of persecution and death. And they cave in to what is a much easier way. A couple of the motivations are just that it's more convenient. Can I just have lots of gods? Is that easier? Is that more convenient? They don't want to clash against having different beliefs from other peoples. And perhaps they'll, they'll be less threatened and in less danger if they don't hold on to the truth. Or some of it is, in fact, that they've given in to this more self-centered approach to faith. I just want to cater to my needs and to what I want in life rather than focusing on God or focusing on the needs of others. Or perhaps what they really want to do, and was we kind of, I think, also know this, is they really want to control their own circumstances. They really want to be in control and power and not have to wait on God to act, because who wants to wait? But then God, in this passage in chapter 3, is saying, Even now, return to me. I will forgive you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge the ways you've disobeyed. Acknowledge the ways you've cheated on me. And I will restore you. I will bring healing to what has brought harm. The only problem is, and this is why I wanted to look at a few of these passages in this series, is that this is one of many calls of grace and repentance that God gives. And no matter how many offers there are, they are not enough. That nothing really changes. That this invitation, it keeps happening and happening over again, and that people keep falling short. They don't rearrange and reorient their lives around God. And it's because they are far away from God in their hearts. But there is hope and there is a promise for change. I look at 315. If you have your Bible open, you'll see it. 315, where it says this, then I will give you shepherds after the knowledge, after, shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Shepherds after my own heart. I see that as a personal sort of challenge to me. The shepherds here are oftentimes the kings that would lead people astray. You can think of David, who was a king after God's own heart. But for me, I hear this, and I just know as a call as a pastor, that I must have my heart around the Lord, His understanding, His will, His purpose. In fact, when I first moved here, someone actually gave me a gift of a paddle with this verse attached to it. The idea that shepherds by the Spirit are leading people towards what John spoke of earlier as those quiet pastures. Leading people towards the life of God and with them, I can only do it by God's grace. The other, you know, I mentioned promise, hope, promise, change. That's speaking to something that can happen in people's hearts. The idea that shepherds can have a heart after God means that people should and can have a heart after God. Or in one day, and it says in 317, no longer will they have stubbornness in their evil hearts. That's what it says. So addressing the condition of their hearts is connected to how we understand what God's heart is. That's where I want to transition to here. How, what is God's heart for us? Because God's heart is not just based on what he does, although we can learn a lot about that. It's based on the center of who he is. His heart comes directly through the being of who God is. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says one of these, you know, if you're going to have top ten verses, this would probably be one of my top ten verses. If you don't have top ten verses, it's okay. All the word is profitable and corrective and amazing. But uh, Matthew 11 is one of these verses I would imagine many of you would say, I'm going to hold on to that one. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, in this verse, and what we know in his witness in the Gospels, perfectly reveals the heart of God as as a person who is gentle and humble. And because of all those things, any of us here, any of us watching, any of us joining and participating, we can find rest in God. And Jesus desires that rest for us, true rest, which involves returning to the genuine source of rest and nothing else which also leads us to true repentance for where we are. And I think about repentance a lot because as a parent, you would just end up saying, I've got to build some sort of from the ground up way of understanding grace, forgiveness, repentance, although I've never used that word with my kids, but repentance. But I know what it's like, you know, Christy and I, when we're trying to get our kids to be, you know, be kind to one another that we almost, I almost feel like we're coercing repentance out of them. It's like, you need to say you're sorry. I was like, do I have to say I'm sorry? Okay, fine. And then you say, I'm sorry. And it's like, did you mean it? I was like, yeah, not convinced. But in Jesus, it's important for us to see that we see the depth of God's heart and God's own heart, not us, not us today deciding, well, I think I'm going to be a better Christian. I think I'm actually going to do the things I think I'm supposed to do. That's not what brings about change. Otherwise, I think maybe a few people in the Old Testament would have figured it out. But Jesus ultimately reveals (laughs) what is needed for true repentance, which is God-directed Grace responsive and obedience producing. And so it leads us to this idea. And I want to reflect on those three things more in this week, the, the next, up, next upcoming weeks. The idea that true repentance is directed by God. True repentance is a response to grace and it produces obedience. But it's because of who God is that transforms who we are. So the more and this is why I like to use more and more language for each of us here, the more and more we we behold Jesus. When we go to the word and we see Jesus, whether it's in Jeremiah, the good news of Jesus Christ in Jeremiah, or it's in the New Testament, the more and more we behold that, the more and more we see the, God, the heart of God, we receive the heart of God. And then when we do that, the more we acknowledge our need of him. That the other things that we go to, are coping mechanisms, the things we try to satisfy in a pinch, those things don't last, they don't cut it. But the heart of God does. And what God's heart does not just leave us in this place of, I don't know what to do. Do I have to figure it out? God's heart does not leave us there. He promises in those days they will start to experience a new reality. All, all these books, it's, that's why the, the Bible is such a beautiful work because it speaks to what God will do, has done, is doing. And it speaks to the fact that a new heart is going to be given to the people of God. So we have our condition of our hearts, the heart of God, which as we stare into, we understand more and more of our need of God. And then is the new heart which is promised to us. And it's promised to us in that passage that uh, Kevin read to us in Jeremiah 31, which I'm going to turn to right now. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Now, the new covenant is only mentioned in the Old Testament like this once, and it's this passage. It's a very significant passage for understanding what God would ultimately do through Jesus and through the people of God and through the church of Christ, the body of Christ. It's so important. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And what we see is that yes, this is the same as the old covenant, but it's also new. So what does that mean? It's a continuation of the covenant. Because he talks about, and he's referencing, I read from Exodus 19 before, that was this treasured possession calling for the covenant people of God at Moses at Mount Sinai. Israel broke that one. It's broken. The covenant vows were broken. The blessings that were promised had to be removed. The curse remained over the people. It was broken. There needs to be a new covenant that would come about, but one that would actually allow and make and lead the people to be capable of fulfilling the expectations. And what's so key is that it's about that right knowledge of God. remember all these mistakes, all these things, honestly, I lament and hate in the world are the things that come from refusing and not knowing who God is. How do we step into the right knowledge of God and be the healing grace and mercy of the world? I love how John in his prayer with us this morning talked about accepting promises. Because in this passage about the New Covenant, there were five promises that stuck out to me this week. Five promises about the New Covenant, and I think it's important that we repent, believe, and accept them. The first of which is the promise of reconciliation. The very first idea of reconciliation is that a member of the different peoples, Judah and Israel, they're pretty, it's, the word is divided kingdom. It's very painful to read about in the Old Testament. But the idea is that God would bring back these people, God's own people, just as he would bring back all of his people, all of people from all cultures, all times and places that God would reconcile people into one redeemed community. The second promise is about regeneration. It's the promise of regeneration that this new covenant, this new calling would transform people from the inside out, which means it's not just, can I just look good on the outside? It's not that at all. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Have you ever thought about God doing this work of shaping the inside of your personality, of the way you relate to him, that would allow you to be more gracious to your spouse or to a close friend or to your children? That is the promise of regeneration, which, as Hebrews tells us, is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews testifies. If you're wondering how this happens, it's through God working in your life through the Holy Spirit and engraving his law and love in your heart. The third promise is about belonging, the promise of belonging, that through this new covenant, there would be a mutual relationship of love that happens. Because what happens in, the old, in Israel's case is that, you know, God always was this pouring out of love. It's the heart of God. And they would just turn away from him painfully with the golden calf. You see this reverse and shunning of God after days being apart from Moses. The promise of belonging, I will be their God and they will be my people. Those, those, those verses, they, they reverberate through all of scripture. If you know them, I will be their God and they will be my people, which is God's way to personally say to each of us, I am yours. I will be yours and you will be my people. You know, one of the critical things about our identity as people in the world is this idea of who, do I, who am I? What am I supposed to do? And we keep trying to find ways to fill that gap in our lives, and it gets detached painfully and wrongfully so from I am yours, that we belong in body and soul to Christ, that he is our creator, our redeemer, and the only source and place through which we have to find purpose and belonging. I am yours union, and communion with God. The fourth promise, and I said five, so I'm almost done, five, fourth is the promise of testimony, the work that would happen as part of the community, which happens in the church That people would share the good news of this reality and relationship with God. And part of this is knowledge of God. That the knowledge of God would be apparent in all of the world. This is part of the solution and reconciliation and healing that happens in the world. Verse 34 says this, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. This is looking way ahead. They will all know me. And the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The last promise is the promise of forever forgiveness. This idea that the grace that God is speaking of in this covenant, this covenant completely marked by grace, will transform and forever give people. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So for me, I I want to apply this a little bit, think a little bit. How do I apply this to my life? Because there is the condition... Of our hearts, there is God's heart, which I'll say more about in a second. And then there is this new heart as part of this new covenant that God desires to give, to write the law on my heart. But I feel caught up in this battle so often. This idea that I'm fighting the work of God in my mind and spiritual formation and growing like Jesus, a lot of times is us asking the questions along the way, like I would hope we are this morning. of How do I participate in what God's doing in my life? If I read the scriptures, it's very clear that, one, God loves the world deeply. I feel the anguish of God in so much of Jeremiah, that God loves the world deeply and is calling people to return to him, that they would find healing and grace and wholeness. If if I know that, how do I participate in that? And how do I do that? Do I, is it a battle I have to win? And I'm glad, I'm thankful to tell you that no, this is not a battle you have to win. It is, it is about stepping in to the victory lap of the battle that God has already won for you. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by his blood. That Jesus came to perfectly reveal his heart and to secure the new covenant for us. So this is not a covenant for exceptional people. The people just are very aware of their need of Jesus. And that God's heart, it does not leave people in darkness. Perhaps you feel like this is a battle I can't resolve in my life. It is about trusting that the battle is already won for you and participating day in, day out on the life that God desires for you. I began reading a book this past week through a a group in our church called Gentle and Lowly. It's completely based upon Matthew 11, that call to come and find rest in God because he is gentle and lowly, and why being Christ as gentle and lowly is so significant. But it speaks to the love and heart of God, that God will not leave us where we are in the darkness, but that he stoops low to lift us up. Hear this quote from this book we read this week. It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated. And as a side, we just don't celebrate it enough, the love of God. It's impossible for it to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed, but it is easily neglected and forgotten. We draw too little strength from it. The heart of Christ, which is the deepest heart for all of us. And this victory you see in what Jesus does and secures our place in the covenant, all of us, all of us have a place in the covenant through the work of the cross. It changes how we understand God's love and it changes what we value. Jesus said in Luke 12, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is what where you value, where your love is, the center of who you are the other thing that Christ's victory does is it changes how we live our lives in community as neighbors and friends. It changes. It's, it impacted how I related to the challenges of the past two years. It impacts how I relate to the distance between past friends and family members, and how I engage in the life of community right now. Making the most of each opportunity to love the people around us is so important. One of the things that's really neat is how Scripture basically picks these up and explains them in more detail. So 2 Corinthians is where I want to go now, where Paul talks about the new covenant. It's one of the places he talks very explicitly about it, and he talks about it as in reference to the people in the church, the people in the church that are not just recipients of the new covenant, but are people who live out the return of God. In 2 Corinthians 3.2, it says this. You yourselves are the letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You yourselves are our letter. The idea that what's happened, God's writing on your heart and mind, that's transforming your heart day by day, that is the letter to the world. To express the truth about God's heart. The next verse says this, You show that you are the letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written out, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but tablets of human hearts. And then a few verses down it says this, He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. That was not just the minister of the church. What he speaks to is all of us being ministers of the covenant, the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And the challenge in this, Paul is both affirming the church that it has received and borne witness to who God is, but he also says the work is not done, that we must testify to the work of the Spirit, the Spirit which resides in each of us. It is the work of the Spirit, which is not just law, but it is freedom. The Spirit of the Lord is freedom. That's also what Second Corinthians tells us. So where is this freedom? Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is. How do we receive the Spirit? Through Jesus who sends us His Spirit. And it's Jesus who reconciles the law and the love through the cross. Jesus reconciles the law and the love through the cross, and He reconciles the law and the love through and in your heart. So I would like to invite the worship team to come up as I move towards just closing and reflecting this, but I began by thinking about follow your heart. I don't know what your reaction was to that. Maybe, maybe uh, that was something that was, you really kind of thought, is there space for that? I think there, there is because part of that is tapping into a deeper level of intuition and not your mind. But when you look at the condition of heart, you know where that might lead, if that's all you're relying on. Follow, but what I think I look at the new covenant and the call in these passages we've looked at this morning. The challenge and call to each of us is not to follow your heart, but to follow God's heart. To be filled with the strength of the Spirit, which allows you to t- return to Him, to trust in the depth of God's heart for you, which leads you to the next step, which leads you to the next day, where you can welcome daily the life of the Spirit. I, um, I want to close by reflecting on this hymn. It's this hymn that actually means a lot to me. Is something I reflected on, but it speaks to the fact that each of us, God is not letting go of any of us. That God has determined that we would find grace in future times, and future chapters of our lives. That moment where I was just talking about that he says, I'm yours and you are his over his life. That there's not a moment that he's not going to be with you or lead you. And this hymn reflects that, that I want to read over us as a close. It's called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross, the liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust. Life's glory dead, And from the ground their blossoms red, life that shall endless be. I want to close by praying for us, and just join me now. Lord, I pray um, But Lord, your truth would resound that, Lord, anything I have said that would be set aside that would not reflect your heart. That all these things in your word testify to the fact that your love will not let us go. And you're calling us to follow your heart and not to just be left following our own, because in that we would be lost. That you've gone to great lengths through the death of your son, that we would find life and hope in you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would invite us to trust you more today, that you would invite us to be more open to receiving and participating in the work of your spirit, the joint riding of our hearts that produces and leads to more grace and more obedience, that you would be more clearly seen in the world. I just pray your grace would be upon us, that your grace would empower us by your spirit to reflect your beauty and goodness more and more.